If you're a regular KSAT 12 viewer, you've seen this before. The aquifer's down today, four tenths of a foot to 662.5. We need some rain. The aquifer yesterday did not change. I want to show you the aquifer level. It's actually up a tenth of a foot over the past 24 hours, which is good, but still below the monthly average. Our weather authority team reporting on the Edwards aquifer water levels. The aquifer is the primary source of drinking water for millions of us around South Central Texas and the Hill Country. So you know it's important but maybe you still have some questions. In this week's episode of KSAT Explains, we're diving into how the Edwards Aquifer works, why it's so heavily regulated, and we're learning about the conservation efforts that are in place to protect the aquifer and the creatures who call it home. KSAT Explains. KSAT Explains. KSAT Explains. KSAT Explains. On-demand, in-depth perspective. Perspective on stories we bring you in our newscasts throughout the day. We're looking into concerns over voting safety during a pandemic and the battle over mail-in voting. A look at how the protests and demonstrations have played out in our city and an examination of what it means to be black in San Antonio. An issue that you have likely felt the effects of, rising property taxes. The roots of Tejano run deep in South Texas. We examine the cultural impact the music has had in San Antonio. Flames team partnered with meteorologist Justin Horn and Tara Spivey for an episode all about the aquifer. Thanks for joining us for this episode of KSAT Explains. I'm Myra Arthur. It goes without saying that we all need water. And here in San Antonio, the Edwards Aquifer is the primary source. The health of the aquifer is essential. Its history is interesting. And its future? affects all of us. For this episode of KSAT Explains, we have partnered with two members of our team who report on the aquifer every day. KSAT 12 meteorologist Sarah Spivey and Justin Horn. They'll take it from here. When we report on the Edwards aquifer number every day on KSAT, it's usually just for a small portion of our larger forecast. We really don't get the time to explain the full story of the aquifer and why it's important. But as Myra said, it is important. And we hope by the end of this episode, you'll have a better understanding of the city's primary source of drinking water. So let's start there. How does the aquifer work? The Edwards Aquifer encompasses an area from Edwards and Kinney counties as far east as Travis and Hayes counties. The three important sections of the aquifer are the contributing zone, which can be found in the hill country, the recharge zone, and the artesian zone. Here is a cross section of what that aquifer system looks like. Here we have the contributing zone, which is sometimes called the drainage zone or the drainage area, and that's in the hill country. Next, the recharge zone, which features areas of the aquifer which are fractured and visible on land. Think of areas like Government Canyon, where you can see the holy limestone features everywhere. And then finally, the artesian zone, where San Antonio lies. The artesian zone is where we harvest the water through wells. And here's how the aquifer works. Rain falls on the contributing zone in the hill country, and the water runs downhill into the recharge zone, where it enters the porous aquifer system. Similarly, rain can just simply fall on the recharge zone and immediately enter the aquifer. Then the pressure from all that water builds up in the artesian zone, and we harvest it by digging wells. The aquifer level you see here on KSAT is the level of the aquifer at one of those wells, J17. And just is going to talk about that a little bit later in our show. To get a better understanding of just how old the aquifer is and how it was formed, Sarah headed out to Government Canyon. 
So the history about why we have the Edwards Aquifer is really fascinating. It goes back millions and millions and millions of years ago. One thing that's really cool is that Texas used to be under shallow seas and where we live in San Antonio it used to be a beach. You can see evidence of this in the form of dinosaur tracks at Government Canyon believed to have been formed either on a muddy beach or on a sandy beach. What's really cool, again, millions of years ago, Texas had shallow seas. And in these shallow seas, what you ended up having was all these mollusks and uh, clams and those kind of creatures. Now they died <laughs> and their remains over millions of years have formed the karst, which is what the Edwards Aquifer is made out of. Karst is a porous limestone. Again, these are the fossilized remains of all of those mollusks and shelly creatures. And the porous uh, nature of this is what houses the water. So what we're standing on is essentially a giant sponge that soaks up all that water that, that we can utilize. So pretty interesting and neat history that you can see about the Edwards Aquifer. Thanks, Sarah. That's a great explanation. And speaking of karst, let's dig a little deeper, quite literally, and go underground. There are thousands of caves across the Texas Hill Country, and they're there for one reason, the aquifer. One of the best ways to understand the aquifer is to actually go down into one of the thousands of caves we have here in the Texas Hill Country. It's a good way to understand what the aquifer used to look like and what its structure looks like. Today, we're going to go down into a cave here in Comal County. In we go. It's a nice drop into this limestone cave and the lights go on. What we see below is the equivalent of a history book of the aquifer. So at one time the cave was filled with water and then as the water levels have dropped over geologic time it's left these relics uh, of conduits that move water through the system and that. And so these caves allow us to look at the fabric of the limestone to understand better how groundwater moves through the system, how it goes from recharge to discharge. This cave was probably formed millions of years ago, which brings us back to that word again, karst. Karst is a, a landscape that's characterized by sinkholes and sinking streams and caves and springs. Uh, it's also a what we call a subsurface uh, system that allows us to transport and move water through it very quickly, very rapidly. Just how rapidly? Schindel says dye testing provides that answer. The groundwater velocities, certainly in the recharge zone of the Edwards Aquifer, has been measured at as great as a mile per day. Mind-blowing. And one of the reasons these caves are important to those who study the aquifer. This wall is a good example of what the aquifer would look like. You see it's kind of sponge-like. It has pockets here, and the water is in these pockets and then moves through the system, eventually discharged at the springs. Fascinating to think about, and while most of these caves are just relics, a few provide actual access to the aquifer. There are some of the caves in Bear County and, and Medina Uvalde and, and Hayes County where we've been able to go through the cave uh, down deep enough that we've actually seen the Edwards Aquifer itself. And that, so there's a handful of those. Uh, it's something that cavers are always looking for, but it goes to show you how fragile it is. Fragile and occasionally claustrophobic. Like many caves in the Texas Hill Country, this has a lot of tight spaces that we've been crawling through, but it opens up into bigger rooms like this one. Past that, we come face to face with this guy, a tricolor bat, an example of the cave's fragile ecosystem. This is a small species, though, compared to what likely called this cave home in the past. There's been some excavation in the cave by scientists, and they've uh, found that uh, there are a teeth of uh, animals like mammoth 
a baby mammoth that were probably killed and drug in here because they probably didn't come in through the entrance. After all, these cave systems are vast and can, in some cases, go on for miles. Not something we'll be testing today. We make our way out, leaving with more knowledge than we arrived with. And that goes for all of us. The formation of the Edwards Aquifer is interesting, but during the aquifer's more recent years, things have gotten a little complicated. Attorneys got involved, and as Justin reports, that's when the Edwards Aquifer Authority was born. The beginning really stems from a lot of conflict and controversy over what to do about this resource. In the 80s, the Edwards Aquifer had long been San Antonio's main water source. It was a rapidly growing city and there was concern. Was there enough water for everyone? Then, much like now, there really weren't that many laws uh, dictating how you could limit groundwater withdrawals. And so the Sierra Club in the 90s brought an endangered species suit, um, which was sort of the only way to, to go about something like that. You'll hear more about those endangered species later, but the ruling was clear. The judge said, look, Texas, you either need to manage this or the federal government and me are going to come in and do it. And so the legislature has never moved so fast, I don't think, in the history of Texas because we got the Edwards Aquifer Authority. Now, more than 20 years later, the Edwards Aquifer Authority is, by all accounts, a success story. San Antonio is so much bigger than it was, and we are the aquifers doing just fine because we've adjusted. Um, we've sort of met the needs of nature. And we have a three-pronged mission, three words, manage, enhance and protect the Edwards Aquifer system. And over its history, the EAA has evolved from mostly managing the aquifer to shifting more towards protecting and enhancing it. Which brings us to where we are now, a city where uniquely the local news reports the aquifer every day. I do not know of any other place that reports aquifer levels on a daily basis like San Antonio does. And I think that's a testament to how important it's become and, and how, how the conservation ethic has taken root in San Antonio. So where do we go from here? I think that the biggest challenge moving forward is, is making sure, as I've said, that the aquifer remains sustainable in the face of a number of different potential risks or threats. Uh, climate change being one, but beyond that, uh, what, what is happening in the region as a result of the development. As growth continues, for example, into the, into the hill country, which is the catchment area for the, for the Edwards, that's where all the water comes from that gets into the Edwards. What does that mean for us in terms of recharge to the Edwards? Is there a threat that the quality of water that gets into the aquifer is gonna be compromised at some point? So the EAA's mission is not over, and one way the EAA and the city of San Antonio are helping to preserve the aquifer for future generations is through conservation easements. And the city has bought more than 160,000 acres of these conservation easements over the aquifer. It's funded by a sales tax. And a conservation easement just means that the landowner agrees not to develop the land so things like pollution don't feed into the aquifer. So what that easement does is it has certain conditions attached to it that um, prevents development of that property and it keeps it in this natural state, as you see here, to allow uh, the processes of recharge to happen on the property, but to be uninterrupted by impervious cover and other types of development. Meantime, here are some quick facts about the EAA. The EAA is funded by user permit fees, not taxes. The largest permit holder, San Antonio Water System. While the EAA acts like a groundwater district, it is unique in its mission, separating it from other traditional groundwater districts. 
Will the aquifer ever run dry? Not in our lifetime. And water levels are not managed simply to keep it from running dry. It's managed to keep levels high enough to keep the springs flowing for endangered species. Which brings us to the next part of our story. We've now explained that the Edwards Aquifer Authority was created to protect species that rely on the aquifer and to keep the federal government out of managing it. So in an effort to avoid further federal involvement, the EAA put together a habitat conservation plan. We discovered that means turning over every rock to make sure the numbers of a certain species stay at a healthy level. Snorkeling and one foot of water may not qualify for extreme water sports, but these two biologists have an important gig. Turning over one stone at a time, they are counting Comal salamanders inside Lena Park in New Braunfels. These flags representing where they've spotted one of the elusive creatures. This is like a bigger one here that a slight bit leucistic. Meaning they come in all colors and sizes and thankfully seem to be thriving in their one and only habitat. They were able to find quite a few Comal salamanders here today. It is petitioned to be on the threatened or endangered list, but isn't quite yet. It's in the same family though as the Texas blind salamander, which is endangered. In total, there are 11 endangered, threatened, or petitioned to be endangered species that call the springs of the Edwards Aquifer home. We have, you know, three salamanders on there. We have fish species. We have Texas wild rice as a plant, and then we have a number of macroinvertebrates. And it is these tiny critters that spurred the development of the EAA, and also why we are here today all born out of a lawsuit. The Sierra Club was the original lawsuit in 1991. This is where the Fed stepped in, citing the Endangered Species Act. A lot of people are very surprised that the limits that we have on watering are actually for these tiny little critters. In 2013, the culmination was an agreement among the five permittees, the city of San Marcos, the city of San Antonio through SAWS, the city of New Braunfels, Texas State University, and the Edwards Aquifer Authority. Those five entities agreed to start the Habitat Conservation Plan. The Habitat Conservation Plan, it's not something we hear about much, but it plays a vital role in how the aquifer is managed. And so this covers us to do certain activities uh, that are aimed at protecting these threatened and endangered species. Which brings us back to today's count data like this is turned over to the federal government to satisfy any concerns. And the species, just because they're listed endangered, does not mean that they're near extinction. That just means that they need to be protected and preserved, their habitat preserved. Which is evident in and around Landa Park. The Kamau Springs are flowing steadily, and if you're curious, the water stays a comfortable and consistent 72 degrees. The Kamau system has 425 springs that feed into it, like this one back here. It's kind of coming out of a sidewall water feeds down into the system, and it's the perfect environment for those threatened and endangered species. Numbers look healthy. Um, the system is, is the habitat is, is strong. The species have been preserved well, and they're continuing to thrive. In record numbers, a sign that the entire aquifer system is alive and well, a stat that the EAA believes we should all care about. Justin just showed us one type of salamander that lives in the aquifer, but if there were a poster child for conservation efforts within the Edwards Aquifer, it's the Texas blind salamander. And at the San Marcos Aquatic Resources Center, that's where these little guys are kept alive and a backup population is kept there too, in case something happens to them. And the idea here is that if something catastrophic were to happen to the aquifer itself or the rivers that are fed, like the San Marcos River, we would have a population on station. Here, they feed and breed the Texas blind salamanders to keep the population going. 
But what makes this strange-looking salamander a perfect mascot for the Edwards Aquifer? It's got these long, gangly arms. It's got these really like fluffy gills, and it's completely white. And so it's kind of a very intriguing species. And I think people gravitate to its cuteness and its slightly creepiness, but it also its mystery. And researchers here are trying to solve the mystery of the Texas blind salamander, as details about the species population can be a bit fuzzy. We do some tagging where we, when we catch animals, um, we'll release some that we catch and we'll tag them so that if we catch them again, we'll know it. And that can give us an idea of how many are down there. In reality, it's difficult to know just how large or small the Texas blind salamander population is, simply because the tiny creatures live deep underground and underwater in a vast pitch black aquifer which spans thousands of miles. But we do know that they're likely a top predator within the aquifer system, eating worms and small shrimp. Pretty much anything that swims in front of them, they'll probably try to eat it. Um, so not too discerning of an animal, but whenever there's not much down there, you have to take what you can get. Researchers have also determined that the salamanders can live for quite a long time because of their slow metabolism. We have some here that have lived about 10 to 15 years so far, but I wouldn't be surprised if they live 20 years or more. So if the Texas blind salamander lives for quite some time and their population is healthy, why do we need to regulate the water level and quality of the aquifer? They have very permeable skin, like if, if there's some contaminant in the water, it's gonna permeate them too, right? Uh, unlike us who have like very tough skin, who are very resistant to environmental changes, they're super sensitive to environmental changes. And in the end, the scientists here believe conservation efforts are not just about the species we protect. Through conservation, we're actually preserving these ecosystems and these, these river systems for our use too. For the saving of a species that some people may view as pitting man versus critter or animal. We don't, we don't view it that way necessarily because I think that's just a short-sighted short view of the, of the issue. At the end of the day, whether it's benefiting the species that live in those habitats or not, uh, it's benefiting all of us because we're ensuring that the resource remains viable for us. Every day you hear us giving you the aquifer report, but where does that number come from? What does it mean and how is it recorded? To answer these questions, Justin takes us out to the ever important J17 well. On KSAP, we always show you this graphic of the aquifer. It shows the level, but what does that number mean and where is it measured? It's actually measured in this building here behind me. This is the J17 well. It's located at JBSA Fort Sam Houston and they invited us inside today. So let's go take a look. Inside, a typical monthly checkup of the well is underway by Charles Crawford. Right there. So I can bring it up and we'll get J-17 is literally just a small hole in the floor surrounded by a box drilled in 1914 to supply water to Fort Sam Houston. And while it's safe to say not much has changed. And this is pretty much the same method that they've been using to measure water wells for about 100 years. This isn't just any well. This is definitely one of the most uh, important wells in Texas. It, it definitely, at, at, as far as statewide goes, has one of the longest histories. That's for sure. Continuous observations started at the well in 1932 by the U.S. Geologic Survey. The amount of historic data is what makes J-17 so valuable to aquifer scientists, along with its location over the aquifer, of course. Nowadays, we get an electronic aquifer measurement 
every 15 minutes. So you can kind of see down hole there. Uh, so th this well actually goes down to, to 874 feet. Uh, it's cased to about 600 feet uh, cased, and then it's just kind of open hole rock uh, from there on. Uh, and so the instrumentation is uh, the three instruments, the pressure transducers that are down there are, are underwater. Uh, they have to be underwater to get the pressure. And then uh, that, that information, like I said, is transmitted up through these cables over here to our, our data logger. From there, some conversions take place, so that number can be easily compared. It measures uh, in pressure, uh, and then we do a conversion that then uh, converts that pressure to what we call the feet above the instrument, feet of water that sits above the instrument. So once we've got that, we know where the instrument is set at. Uh, then that's when we get the, the depth to water. So what we measure is the, uh, from the top of the land surface to the top of the water is, is depth to water in feet. Uh, and then we do another little bit of calculation and we get the water elevation, uh, which is the elevation of that water level in reference to uh, uh, feet above uh, mean sea level. Trust me, it's a lot of math. But in the end, that's where we get this number that you see every day. And it's that one little number that sets water policy for millions and determines things like when you can water your yard. It is vital. Making this well and this small white building a crucial piece of the system and a literal direct conduit to the aquifer. We know that was a lot of information, but we hope you have a better understanding of the Edwards Aquifer. And the next time you see us reporting its levels on KSAT 12, now you'll know why those numbers are important. A huge thank you to Justin Horn and Sarah Spivey for diving in to explain all we need to know about the Edwards Aquifer. Thanks for joining us for this episode of KSAT Explains. I'm Myra Arthur. We'll see you next time.